it was on and I turned it off. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. All right. Now I can hear myself. Good. All right. So uh, anyways, um, they had done this at Auburn. They're, they said, hey, let's try it in Athens. And so um, uh, Clarksville is clearly not Athens. Uh, however, uh, that's where they did it. And so um, uh, they, they had about 100 students there this morning, which was great for the first year. And uh, they did a tabling event yesterday for all the campus ministries and and so forth, and uh, had some of the local college pastors come in and speak as well uh, throughout the event and, and asked me to speak uh, this morning. Uh, and so, matter of fact, I actually got the call on Friday to speak this morning because the guy that was supposed to speak this morning wasn't able to be there. Um, and uh, they try to get college pastors from local churches to speak because that's part of the emphasis of it. However, uh, one of the guys uh, had some family stuff going on at the last minute, and so they said, well, can you come? And I said, sure, I think, but I'm supposed to speak at Forest Heights at 11, and it's an hour away, right? And they said, yeah, but we'll only do two songs instead of the normal four before you preach, so we'll get you out of there. And uh, I'm glad I didn't come running any cops, that's all I'll say. Uh, I also didn't have time to change, so, uh, so anyways. And it was outside. Like, I got in there, I was like, oh, yeah. And thank goodness it was cool and there was a breeze because when I rolled up and I realized they didn't tell me I was speaking in an outside gym uh, and then going, yeah, so, but it was, it was, it was nice and breeze and so forth. So it was great. So this is second time around. I'll get three opportunities today because I'll be back with you guys tonight and I'm excited about that. I want to encourage you to come back tonight. You don't want to miss tonight. We're actually going to flip back to the Old Testament tonight and, uh, and, and see really uh, kind of what went wrong uh, with the nation of Israel and how they missed an opportunity uh, that they had there. Uh, if you were here last Sunday night, uh, you know that we, we talked about um, the essentials to an effective church. Uh, and then uh, this morning, and I, and I told uh, the group last Sunday night, I, I really want to use these three sermons to, to help. Uh, we know that, that, um, that you guys are in a transition uh, between pastors and so forth. And, and so I want to do everything I can to help you guys. Uh, and so uh, this morning we're going to come out of Acts chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in verse 12. Uh, we're going to actually cover all the way through chapter 2 verse 41, um, but we're not reading all that at one time. Uh, we'll, we'll read it in some chunks. Um, but I, but I want to ask the question, how can God do the miraculous? How can God do the miraculous? And so uh, we're going to just jump straight into the text this morning if we can, particularly because there's a lot of it. And, uh, and that way we get you out of here at a decent time. So begin reading here in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, we'll read down uh, through uh, chapter uh, 1, actually just through verse 22 to start with. Uh, we'll start there and then, and then uh, pick up the other verses as we go. Uh, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons who were there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit foretold uh, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us and received his share in his ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Isn't that one of your favorite verses in Scripture? Good gracious, wow. 
And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that uh, in their own language the field was called Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen, to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll stop there this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we ask you that as we look at this passage of Scripture, help us to see, Lord, uh, what's taking place here. Lord, we know that right after this, Lord, obviously, in this, this next part of these verses that we're going to read, Lord, you do perform the miraculous, as, as, Lord, we know that there were a thousand souls saved there at the day of Pentecost. But, Lord, help us to, to see this, uh, Lord, uh, and see intently here what was going on through this entire process. Lord, help us to recognize that it is not the day of Pentecost. That was a one-day amazing event that occurred. However, Lord, help us to see that there are some things here that we can apply to us today and help us to do that and do it well. So, Lord, we love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. So, how can we see God do the miraculous? As I just said in my prayer, uh, we're not going to have another Pentecost, and, and I get that. Uh, however, there are some principles that we can see here in this passage of Scripture uh, that really play out throughout Scripture, uh, but they just sort of yell at us right here in this passage of Scripture of some things that take place when we see God doing the miraculous amongst His church. And, and the first thing I would say here out of this passage of Scripture is that you've got to have the right preparation. You've got to have the right preparation. I just read from verse 12 down through the end of chapter 1 there in, cha in verse 26. And, and if you look here in verse 12 through verse 26, uh, you know, spoiler alert, obviously in chapter 2 we see 3,000 people get saved. But in chapter 1, we see the preparation that's occurring before the, that event ever took place. Now, if you remember, you go back to the beginning of chapter 1, and uh, you, you find that the disciples are sitting there, and, and I love the, the imagery that we get. They're staring into the clouds as Jesus has ascended, right? And what they're basically told, they're basically told, quit staring, and, but then the catch is, not go do something, but go wait. Did y'all catch that? Like, it's like, quit staring up in the clouds, go, go do something. But go do something is actually just go wait, right? And, and one of the things that, uh, that I, I've, I've, or principles I've taken from that particular story there is the fact that the reality is is so many times what we do is, is when we find ourselves in a waiting period, um, if we're not careful, uh, it can potentially lead, if, our, if, if we're not uh, preparing right, it can lead to almost a state of like sort of laziness where we just don't do anything. However, that's not what's happening here. Uh, when you look to scripture and you find that spiritually God calls us to wait, th that's always a time of preparation. Right? It's always a time of preparation for what's coming next. And, and so what I would say is that as a church, you guys are sort of in one of those periods of time, right? Where the reality is, it's like, well, you know, you got a pastor search team that's doing their thing, and, right? And you're kind of having to kind of having to do what you do as a church in the, in the midst of that interim period. But the reality of it is, is that you can go one or two ways. One way is, is that you don't prepare the way you need to prepare. The other way is, is you take care of some things that you need to take care of in the process, right? And if you go that way, what happens is, is you're setting yourself up 
for God to work in the way that we see him work throughout scripture. And, and many times it ends up very miraculous. And, and so what is it they're doing then to prepare? After they've just been told, go and wait, what are they doing to prepare for what God's going to do? Well, we see two things. Number one, they're praying. They're praying. Uh, it, it says there that they're in the upper room. It says they return to Jerusalem. When they enter the city, they went up to the upper room and they were staying there. It, it tells us who's all there. And then it says in verse 14, they all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. So here you've got these folks that have, that have come together after uh, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, right? And so these folks have seen Jesus. Um, he, they, I mean, that in itself is a miracle in itself, right? They've heard these last instructions that he's given them. They know that they've been told to wait. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And so what they do is they go to this place and they pray. There is not an act of God that you will ever see occur without prayer. You must have prayer. But not only must you have prayer, but there's some practical things that have to be taken care of as well. Uh, we know what took place with Judas, right? And, and so we get this awful imagery of, of what takes place there uh, with Judas. And, and uh, the fact that he had, uh, it says, now this man acquired a field and falling headlong, he burst open, etc. And so now we've got this hole that's got to be filled, right? I mean, we do. Like, yeah, that, that was good language by me, wasn't it? That was great. That was not meant to be funny, but I'm kind of glad it was, right? I don't know. Is it, it's, it's still too soon to make jokes about that, isn't it? It's still too soon. 2,000 years later. Um, all right, look, here's, here's, here's the reality of it, though. Uh, there was a need, right? There was a need uh, because one of the disciples is, is not with them anymore. And so there's some practical things they got to take care of. Now, we're not going to have some theological discussion of the whole drawing of lots and what that says. We're, we're not going there today, all right? Uh, this, this isn't, you know, okay to go gamble. That's not what we're doing here, right? Uh, but what we do see is we see that, that God had to take care of some things in their life from a practical standpoint as well. They needed to find out who was going. They had to figure out who was going to fill this role because Judas did have a significant role. I mean, he was, he was the, the money keeper, right? I mean, he's the treasurer of the group. And so now he's gone, and so it's, we, we still got to figure out what we're doing. We still have to function. And so they're in this situation where, I mean, they just, they, just, they just lost Jesus may not be the right term, but for them it felt that way, right? They just lost Jesus, their leader, right? And, and, and they lost their treasurer. I mean, goodness gracious, all right? And so they got some things they need to take care of. And so they start with prayer, which is where we should always start when it comes to finding ourselves in this sort of place of waiting and, and when it comes to preparation uh, but then they took care of some practical things now here's one of the dangers that happens uh, in the life of the local church and here's one of the dangers that happens in the life of an individual when it comes to preparing for God to move well the problem is is number one we never really know exactly what that move of God's going to look like or feel like later on down the road right I mean that's one of the struggles when you're having to wait and when you're preparing because uh, you know uh, God, the, the Bible teaches us that he guides our, he's a, he's a light into our path, right? And, and so he hides our, he, or not hides, he guides our steps. The problem is that sometimes it feels like he's hiding what's around the corner. You've you been there before, right? But that doesn't mean that you quit preparing. And, and so we see prayer taking place, but we see the practical aspect of it taking place. And here's the danger. The danger is, is that sometimes what happens is, 
is we spend all of our time in prayer and not taking care of the practical stuff. And if we do that, then what happens is, is, is uh, I, it, it leads to what I like to call spiritual laziness, right? We get real, real, real spiritual, but we don't ever do anything. And that's not any good either, right? I mean, and, 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 and the thing is, the other side of it is that we can get so practical that when we're not praying, and so then it becomes self-powered. And anything that's self-powered only goes as far as your own power. And there's a limit to that, right? And, but yet what we see in this passage of Scripture is that both are occurring. Both are occurring. And so what I would encourage you to do as a church is this. is during this period of time where you're sort of waiting, where you're in this place where, you know, uh, you, know you may have been told, quit looking at the clouds and go wait, right? Which is what they've been told to do. I would say make sure you're preparing in a right manner, which means that everything that you're doing must be bathed in prayer, right? Everything must be bathed in prayer. But at the same time, there are some practical things that you can do to set yourself up well for, 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 for whatever comes next. And that's hard when you don't really know exactly what's coming next, and I get that. But that's where the prayer comes in. But that's where the prayer comes in. That's also where, where, where seeking out wisdom from others comes in, right? Folks that have been there before. I mean, that's just, just, just practically that, you, you know, helps as well. And, and so here we see that you've got to have, if you're going to prepare for the miraculous, or if you're going to see the miraculous, you have to have the right preparation. Not only do you have to have the right preparation, but, but I want us to begin reading there again in verse 23. And, and uh, we're going to go down through verse 13 of chapter 2, and we'll see here that you have to have the right participants. You have to have the right participants. It says in verse 23, so they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know who the hearts of all the men. Uh, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots, and lot fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost had come, this is beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were, excuse me, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were be bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all of these who speak Galileans? Um, or why are not all of these who spe uh, speaking, are they speaking Galileans? Uh, and how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. And then it says in verse 13, uh, oh, I'm sorry, that is verse 13. So here's, here's the, uh, the, the, the point. The point is, is that not only do you have to have the right preparation to see God do the miraculous, but you also have to have the right participants. Now we know from chapter 1, there's 120 followers of Jesus that are there. 
uh, we know that there's Joseph and Matthias, obviously, uh, that are mentioned here. Uh, we also know that there are Jews from all over. Uh, by the way, if you ever get in that place in Scripture where you're not really quite sure, no matter what they even told you in seminary of how to pronounce a place or a name, you just say it really fast with conviction and nobody ever knows. Y'all got that? I just did that about five times, and so we're good. Uh, but anyways, you see all these folks here from all over. You see the Gentile, and that's, that's in verse 5, really verse 9 through 11, they're listed as well. You see the Gentile proselytes that had come to, uh, uh, to Judaism that are there uh, because of uh, the, the celebration that's occurring in Jerusalem. Uh, but you also see uh, that there was somebody there to preach the gospel, right? Uh, there was Peter there to preach the gospel. Uh, and uh, so here's the image. There are the followers of Jesus that are there. There are these lost individuals that are there. All these Jews from all over. The Gentile proselytes from all over. And, and then you've got Peter who's ready to proclaim the gospel. But notice this with me if you will. None of that works. None of that matters. Unless who shows up? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Verse 23 uh, of chapter 1, all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 13, is really not about it. List all these other people, but the catalyst for everything is the Holy Spirit. Which is why, with the right preparation to occur, there's got to be prayer. Right? There's got to be prayer. Uh, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is that you can't have salvation without the Holy Spirit. We don't save anybody. Right? We are the messengers. That's, that's who we are. Uh, the Holy Spirit does the work on a person's heart, and, and the Holy Spirit convicts. And, and the bottom line is, is that we are just the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. And I love this image that you get here because, I mean, uh, you know, half these folks think they're drunk, right? I mean, that's what it says in verse 13. It says, it says uh, they're all perplexed. They're like, how is everybody speaking in, in this language that everybody understands? How in the world can they understand this? Right? And the bottom line is, is that, you know, some are like, man, this is amazing. And then others are like, they must all be drunk, which is confusing to me. Because uh, if you've ever been around a drunk person, usually their, their speech is not easier to understand. It's harder to understand. You understand what I'm saying? It begins to slur, not becomes clear. So I, I've never understood that, that one. I'm like, what? This doesn't make any sense at all, right? I, I do think it's interesting here, though. You know, there's another place in Scripture that says, uh, uh, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And isn't it interesting here that when you look at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls upon, the, the, the contrast here again is made with drunkenness versus being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that says something about how that we should allow the Holy Spirit to control our lives, doesn't it? Uh, I think it really does. And you can compare and contrast that with how that when alcohol, when someone's drunk, that, that it, it controls someone's life and so forth. And obviously that's not what you want. And uh, you, you can also uh, say that uh, if you want to get into a deep conversation about it, you could probably say uh, that, uh, that you can't have both, right? Like you cannot be living a life controlled by the Holy Spirit if you're partaking in drunkenness. It's, it's not possible. And so here we see that in, in Scripture, even from the beginning with the Holy Spirit. But anyways, what's the point? The point is this, is that you can prepare all you want practically, but if prayer's not involved, then the right people aren't going to show up, the right participants aren't going to show up, because the Holy Spirit's not going to be part of it. What I would also say is this, is that we know that the way that we live a life that is 
filled with the Holy Spirit is by being obedient to God's word, being in his word, also by being around other believers, right? There are some practical things that we can do when it comes to preparing for God to do a miraculous work in our lives and in the life of the church that we're part of by making sure that we are living a spirit-filled life. By making sure that we're living a spirit-filled life. Not following the things of the flesh, not making decisions based on things of the flesh, but instead making decisions on where the Holy Spirit is leading us. So here we have the right preparation, we have the right participants, but I want you to also see with me this morning that we have the right practice. We have the right practice. Verse 14, i got to read a lot here, so y'all stay with me. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live, uh, you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. This also trips me out because his response is not these men are not drunk, it's the Holy Spirit. He says these men are not drunk, it's too early in the day. Right? That's what he says. Wow. Okay, Peter. And it shall be, verse 17, in the last days, God says, that I will pour out forth from my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even of my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour out of my, uh, forth uh, my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs of the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn uh, to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he is neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received the word were baptized, and that day there were about 3,000. 
6,000 souls added. Well, that took me about three and a half minutes to read. And that's what Peter said. Now, somebody's going to say, well, it said he said more words. Well, that was just his closing. Right? Y'all know how Baptist preachers are. Right? That was, that was where he said, hey, you know, just one more thing. Right? That was it. So his sermon was only three and a half minutes long. You can't include the closing in a sermon. So here's Peter. He preaches for three and a half minutes the gospel. Right? Uh, he, he starts in the Old Testament. He finishes with the resurrection of Jesus. And what happens? 3,000 souls are saved. So what's the right practice? Well, the right practice is clear and precise evangelism. It's clear and precise evangelism. So let's, let's backtrack this thing for just a second. What do you need to see the miraculous? Somebody said, well, the miraculous was, was the Holy Spirit descending upon them at the day of Pentecost. I'll give you that. But just as miraculous is the fact that 3,000 people are saved after a man preaches a three-and-a-half-minute sermon, Right? And so here what we find is, is that there's a couple of things that go into this. Prayer, taking care of some things practically, right? Uh, y'all remember like when everybody used to do like the week-long revivals and all that stuff? And not only did you do the revivals, but you did like the preparation before the revivals, right? Where you like you, you canvassed the neighborhood or you, you, know, you had the prayer time on you know, the Wednesday nights before and all this kind of stuff. And you promoted your high attendance with whatever day it was and all that good stuff. Y'all remember that? All right, so, so check this out. I'll tell you what, um, this, this right here, I mean, like some of those evangelists even today, they'll give you like those big old thick like manuals. Like when you're on staff, they'll hand the staff a big thick manual and say, here's everything I need you to do before I show up. And so you're like, all right, we're going through the checklist and we're doing everything. All they really had to do was preach this passage of scripture, I'm telling you, because it's all right here. You know what it is? It's pray. Do the practical things you need to do. Make sure lost people are there. And then present the gospel. Is that, that's it. I mean, that's it. I, I said last Sunday night that we've complicated doing church. I mean, here, here's another example. We have complicated what it takes to see God move. We, we put our own preferences involved in here. Ain't preferences? I, I used a lot of P's here, right? Preparation and participants in prayer and practice and all that. But the bottom line is, is, is preference ain't one of them. Right? We've allowed that to complicate what it takes to, to win people to Christ, to see God do the miraculous within a place. Right? We've allowed politics, there's another P, right, that we've thrown into the mix that's complicated what we do. Right? I, mean, I mean, I could keep going on, couldn't I? I mean, that's what we've done. Right? And, and so the, 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 we've allowed procedures. Right? Those are the only three I really had, but all right. I could probably come up with some more, but that was really it. What we've done is, is we've taken all these, these man-made things and we've inserted them into what God really needs for the miraculous to occur within our own individual lives and within the life of the church. And then we've sat back and said, well, why ain't nothing happening? Why won't anything change? Why are we reaching more people? It, it's right here. Pray. Do what God practically needs you to do to prepare. Make sure that lost people are there. If lost people aren't there, nobody's getting saved because you're already saved, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. And as we talked about Sunday night last week, uh, the truth of the matter is, is the most on-fire folks for Jesus are the ones that just recently got saved. So you need some of them. You do. 
So the right practice is presenting the gospel in a clear and precise way. Notice also that this is immediate evangelism that occurs here. This is immediate. One of the dangers of our culture today is, is that we've gotten away from this. We have. I mean, I've heard a speaker say in a conference with a bunch of 18, 19, and 20-year-olds before, you better make sure you build some relational equity before you share the gospel with that individual. I know what they mean, but if you start tracking along that, that train of thought, what happens is, is you just give yourself excuses to not share the gospel. Because you start asking, well, do I have enough equity built up, right? You start, cause, and because here's the thing, y'all, you know this. You ever had a family member that, that, that's not a believer? That is the hardest person in the world to share the gospel with. See, the problem is this. The problem is, is that the deeper relationship you build with somebody, the harder it is to share the gospel. Because the deeper relationship you build with somebody, the more scared you are of losing that relationship. Even though we know in our minds well, that the relationship's just temporal and the eternal matters most, we get all that, we know all that, but we know also we're human. And so what happens is, is the deeper you get in that relationship, the harder it becomes to share the gospel. Because you start thinking things like, well, oh my goodness, like when I do finally share the gospel with them, are they going to look at me and be like, why didn't you ever share this with me before? Like, did you even care about me? Right? You know what I'm saying? Like that comes in our mind. Or it's like, oh no, but like if I share with them, like I've built this great friendship and, and, and like what if, what, if I, what if I share it wrong and I, I miss out? Like I mess up my one chance I had. Right? Or like, but, but uh, man, if I do this wrong, like it could offend them and then I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose the, 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 the privilege that I would have of them even listening to anything I had to say before. Really? But that's what we do. Right? <laughs> Peter just stands up and says, hey, let me tell you what's going on. Let, let, me, let me start back from the beginning. Nobody here is drunk. This is the Holy Spirit. And here's who Jesus was. And here's what Jesus did. And here's how you need to respond. Now, this doesn't give us the, 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 you know, the, 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 the card to swipe to go, well, now I can be a jerk to people. That's not what we're saying here, okay? I mean, there's, there's a right way to communicate the gospel. But what I am saying is this, is that so many times what we do is, is that we create excuses to not share the gospel by claiming that we're using some sort of method to share the gospel. We do. I tell our college students all the time, relational evangelism is not a method that you can't use. It is a method you can use. Like, we teach our students, like, hey, if you meet somebody on campus, invite them to coffee. Invite them to lunch. Go play ultimate frisbee with them. Invite them to a pickup basketball game. Whatever it is you enjoy doing, invite them to do. Like, we do that. The difference is, is that we, especially, like, so the difference is, is that our goal is, is within the first two weeks of you meeting them, we want you to have a gospel conversation with them. Like, we want that to be, because if they're going to get to know you, that better be part of your story anyways. You see what I'm saying? 
right? Like if, if you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ and you're meeting somebody and you start having those conversations and we live in stinking Athens, Georgia for Pete's sake. So the reality of it is, is that we're not up in the Northeast. Like we're not up in Vermont. Like we're not way out in the, in the Northwest, right? Where it may be like, you know, kind of uncouth to bring church and religion into conversation we we are in athens georgia yes athens georgia is the most liberal city in the state of georgia i get that but the bottom line is is there's still a church around maybe not every corner but every other corner and it is still acceptable if it's acceptable with college students at the university of georgia it's acceptable with everybody else too all right because the university is a lot more liberal than the rest of the city all right and, and, and it is still acceptable. Nobody looks at you like you got a third eye when you just ask the question. Hey, hey, you go to church anywhere? Nobody goes, uh-oh, nope. We're not talking about religion in this conversation. No, they go, yes or no, or my favorite is, is they tell you about where they went when they grew up. Right? Y'all understand. But what we've done is we've created this myth that you got to get all this relational equity. But that's not what Peter does. Somebody said, well, the Holy Spirit just fell and people were speaking in tongues. So? The Holy, you don't have the Holy Spirit? I mean, matter of fact, the reality of it is, is that that deal, okay, I'm not questioning the sovereignty of God and what I'm about to say, but, but just understand human nature for a second. This whole speaking in tongues thing could have went one way or two ways. Y'all know what I mean? It could have been a big distraction too. I mean, some of them thought they were drunk. Uh, matter of fact, notice that, that what Peter does is he doesn't start talking about the circumstances of what's going on. He, he, he addresses that and immediately flips and spins to here's who Jesus is. That's what he does. That's what he does. So the right practice is simple. It is clear, precise evangelism. Because as I tell our college students, you know, we've created all of these processes for how we're supposed to do this. And, and one of them being that's real popular right now, this whole relational evangelism thing. Relational evangelism without evangelism is just a friendship. That's all it is. I'm glad you're making friends. But like, I mean, yeah, I, mean I tell our college students, like, hey, if you're making friends and you're saying you're doing it for the gospel's sake... And I ask you, hey, when have you, when have you had a gospel conversation with this person and you can't tell me when? Then what you're doing, I'm glad you make friends. Do you care about them enough to find out where they're going to spend eternity? So, so the right preparation is prayer and it is practical. Too much of one leads to spiritual laziness. Too much of the other leads to being self-powered, which has its limits, obviously. The, the, the right participants is the fact that you've got to have followers of Jesus you got to have those who are lost. you got to have somebody that's got the courage to proclaim. And, and, and that doesn't just have to be a preacher sitting behind a pulpit, right? That's each and every one of us on a day-to-day -day basis. And you got to have the Holy Spirit. And the right practice is simple. It really is. It's share the gospel. When you have the right preparation, when you have the right participants, and you have the right practice, you know what happens? Miracles. Miracles. 3,000 people get saved. 3,000 people get saved who didn't speak the same language, right? 3,000 people get saved from a guy preaching a three-and-a-half-minute sermon, right? One of the things we teach our college students to do as well is how to write their testimony. 
And uh, the young lady that was in charge of our evangelism and mission stuff last year, she came to me and she said, hey, in the spring for our uh, evangelism training that we're going to do in the spring, can we do something different? I said, sure, because we brought in like different speakers and have folks do different things and, and watch some videos, all this stuff. And, and, and she said, can we, can we help our students know how to actually share their story? Like, can we work on their testimonies? And I said, sure, t- tell me why, she said. Because I was in, a, I was in a, a small group the other day, and, and, and they gave us an opportunity to share testimonies. And she said, there were like seven people that t- shared their testimonies on that Thursday night. And she said, I'm telling you, like one of the seven, I can make any sense out of it all. She said, the other six, she said, one guy got up there, and there were supposed to be seven of them sharing. He was like the second guy to share, and he took 20 minutes. And so it was only supposed to be an hour long, you know what I'm saying? And so she was like, can we just work on this? I said, yeah, sure, sure. And I, and I told him. So when we started to work on it, I told him, I said, hey guys, now look, you, you can't make your testimony too long, because remember, it only took Peter three and a half minutes on the day of Pentecost, right? And, and so the right practice is sharing the gospel. 3,000 people were saved. So how in the world does that apply to us? How does it apply to us? Have I told y'all the story about Drew? Um, 2019, um, summer 2019, we were just hammering our college students that were still in town about how that the first two to three weeks, boy, I got to hurry this story up, sorry. The first two to three weeks of uh, school are the most important in reaching college students. Like you get a window, three weeks most, 21 days most, and then it's done. You get who you get after that. Um, and so we were just been, had been drilling them about, you know, sharing their faith, inviting people to church, just making friends, et cetera, uh, and, and, and using that leverage. And so we'd been, been really hammering them about that. And so one of our guys moved into an apartment. And so he moved into his apartment, like, you know, the first week of August when everybody moves into their apartments or whatever. And so some of our students went over to swim at, at the pool. And uh, so I got a phone call, like, that week from one of our students that said, hey, we invited a bunch of kids at the pool. We invited some kids at the pool to come to church um, and got their phone numbers or whatever. Uh, tell me when that we did this thing called Tacos with Tommy. Um, I like to alliterate. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, so basically we fed like, we bought like 500 like uh, uh, street tacos and just fed them all as many tacos as we could. It was nuts. And uh, so we had kids show up that they did never step foot in Beach Haven, but they did because it was tacos, right? Like they're like, yeah, I'll come eat some tacos. And so we did it. And uh, so uh, I'd gotten a phone call. I was like, hey, tell me which Sunday that is again. And I told them. And so they, they texted this one kid, Drew, who they had met at the pool because they had told him, they said, hey, you should come with us. We got a Sunday in a couple weeks where we're doing tacos with Tommy and we want you to come. And uh, they hung out during the day a little bit or whatever. And he's like, all right, I'll go eat some tacos. And so uh, long story short, he shows up on that Sunday and uh, he had heard on that Sunday about our Guatemala mission stuff that we were doing. And he had done some service projects through uh, the, the group that like builds houses, like with Jimmy Carter, the Habitat for Humanity. They've got a different arm that does like international stuff, right? And he was doing, a, he was doing like a service learning study abroad thing for like six weeks that summer before. And so he's like, ah, oh, I want to know what good stuff you're doing. That's all his mind was. Like, I want to go serve, right, in Guatemala. And so I was like, well, hey, I can tell you about that. Let's, let's, uh, let's do lunch or coffee one day. And so on August the 29th, I grabbed Elias Cabrera, who was one of my students at the time, 
And I said, Elias, let's go downtown. We're going to eat with this guy, Drew. And he was like, all right, no problem. And so we went to Barbarito's, and we sat on the third, uh, the third little uh, booth on the right when we went in. And we were sitting there, and we were eating our uh, burritos and chips. And, and uh, so I shared what I thought at the time was the worst gospel presentation I've ever shared in my life. Like, it was terrible. Like, it was so bad. Like, Elias was cleaning stuff up for me. And I, and I don't know why it was so bad. I, I've shared, I share the gospel all the time. I share the gospel with people left and right. So I was like, why is this so bad? Why am I blowing this? This is awful, right? And so anyways, long story short, um, I get through with it. And if you've ever been in that moment where you share the gospel and you just feel like you just blow it, and you're almost like scared that they're going to make a decision in that moment because you're like, I just did this so bad, I might have confused them, or I just need to figure out like an exit strategy so they don't think I'm a weirdo. Like, y'all know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? Like, that was it. In that moment, I was like, I got to figure out how to get out of this, because I want this kid to come back to church. Like, how do I get out of this? So I literally said these words. I said, hey, Drew. I said, let me ask you a question. He said, yeah. I said, the stuff I just shared with you, did it make sense? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, do me a favor. I said, I want you to pray about it. I want you to think about it. I said, you've got my phone number. I said, I'm going to check up with you in a couple days. And I said, if you decide that you want to make this decision for Christ, like, you let me know. Like, if you truly want to become a follower of him. Now, you got to understand, early in the conversation, I'd asked him if, like, where he was, like, spiritually, relationally with Jesus. He goes, well, I'm a Christian. And so then I asked him, I said, well, tell me what it means to be a Christian. And he told me <laughs> what he thought it meant to be a Christian. And boy, that was, that was interesting. You got what I'm saying? Like, it was, it was, it was wild out in left field. And so, so that's how we got into this gospel conversation. And so anyways, um, he looks at me after I tried to get out of the conversation, and he literally says, well, why not now? Like, all right, okay, thank you, Jesus. Why not now? And so I, in that moment, I gave him an opportunity to accept Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he did. And it was clearly nothing I said or Leah said. It was clearly the Holy Spirit because it, it was like two clowns. Like, we were just all over the place. Like, it was awful. That was on August 29th. Three weeks later, in September, uh, he went back to his grandparents' house in uh, South Georgia, and he got baptized. Um, October 16th, fast forward to October 16th, uh, he had been bringing his friend Clint to church with him, like, nonstop, left and right. Uh, Clint was saved at a young age, but had just completely fallen off the deep end, and so Clint had gotten back involved in church with us and so forth. I got a phone call about 9 o'clock that night and said, actually, I got a text that said, Tommy, can I talk to you? It's important. I said, yes, yeah. so I called, called this other young man who had went to school with Drew in high school, and uh, he said, have you heard what happened to Drew? I said, no. And he said he was killed in a car wreck this morning. This was on October 16th, after August 29th. And uh, I said, what? Um, I called all of our interns at the church. There's like 16 of them or whatever. And I said, I need you all to come to my house, like, immediately. They thought I was about to resign. Like, they literally thought I was giving them a heads up that I was going to, like, quit. They got there, and they're like, what's going on? One kid actually thought, what's that dumb game y'all used to play at BCM where you mark, like, you have to chase people down and mark? Mafia. One kid thought I was setting him up to lose in Mafia. Like, he felt awful, like, after the fact. Like, he really did. Like, he was like, I, I don't, um, don't want to, because they were in the middle of Mafia. And so, anyways, um, they all come to the house. I share with them what took place. And so, they wanted to go to the funeral. Um, and so, a bunch of us uh, jumped in a couple vans, and we headed down to uh, South Georgia to go to the funeral. It was the day of that Georgia-Kentucky game where Georgia threw for like 20 yards passing but still won 14 to nothing and everybody fussed because they just kept handing it off. That one, yeah. 
And so we're leaving the funeral. We loved on Clint. We talked to, to Drew's family. We're leaving the funeral. And this young man comes up to me and he, he says, Tommy, are you Tommy? Are you Tommy? I said, yeah, I'm Tommy. And he goes, I want you to see something. And I said, okay. And so he pulls out his phone and he says, this is the last time that Drew and I texted. And it was August the 29th at like 105 or something like that. And it said, hey, man. I just had lunch with these dudes, Tommy and Elias, and I just got saved. This guy that's standing there at this funeral, about yay tall, he's shorter than me, long hair. He says, Tommy, he says, here's the backstory." He said, this summer, I was on that service study abroad deal. And he said, and Drew was my roommate. We never met before. He said, and every night I would sit down and I would open my Bible and I'd begin to do a devotion. He said, in the first couple of nights, Drew said, what are you doing? Now, Drew had went to like VBS with his grandparents when he was a kid. You got it? And, and, and so he's like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm doing my devotion. And so Drew, having had some sort of background in, in church, he was like, well, hey, I'll, I'll read that stuff with you. And he said, so over the course of those six weeks, this young man tells me, he says, Drew and I began to talk about the things of the Bible and things of Jesus. He said, he said, and I was praying for him to come to know Christ. And he said, and I shared with him two or three times, which now made sense why when I did such a terrible job, he at least understood something, right? <laughs> and he said, I left that summer and I thought, I wonder if Drew's ever going to get saved. He said, and then I got the text. And he said, thank you. And I said, no, thank you. A couple weeks after Drew's funeral, our finance lady brought in a receipt to my office, and she said, she said, Tommy, I think you may want this. And it said, August 29th, Barbaritos. And it said, Tommy and Elias and Drew. Gospel appointment. I'd turned it in to turn in my receipt and keep kept it because there was time to throw away the previous month or whatever the receipt or whatever they do with them and uh, to this day that receipt sits up on my office as a reminder of why we do what we do we've complicated But for Drew Sherling, he's in heaven today. Because a young man was willing to, while on a study abroad service thing, open God's word every night in the presence of a kid that he didn't know if he was lost or saved. And to begin to have gospel conversations with that young man. Because a college-aged girl was willing to invite him to eat tacos at church. And because another guy was willing to go with me to lunch with Drew. And I'll see Drew again one day. that's what God wants 
And one of the coolest things about that whole story is that Clint, his best friend that was in the car with him, didn't have a scratch on him. Clint was a believer at a young age, but Clint had, had, had fallen away. And Clint got back in church, and this past year he started coming to BCM. And when I asked Clint, I said, Clint, I said, how, how, do you, how do you handle all this? Like, how do you deal with this? I mean, Clint saw things, because it, it killed Drew instantly. A, guy, a, a dude was high on cocaine and went over a median, coming up the loop out on Timothy, and hit the driver's side window, and it killed Drew instantly. You can figure out the rest. And I said, how do you handle it? I, I told him after, I said, hey, we're going to get you in counseling, dude. Like, we're going to get you some help. Literally, like a month into it, the counselor said, you don't need me anymore. And Clint said these words. He said, Drew transferred to the University of Georgia from Georgia Southwestern so that he could come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. He said, and I figured it out. And he said, not only did that happen, he said, but because of Drew, he said, I'm back where I'm supposed to be in my walk with Christ. And then he left me these words. And it's why I share this story with guys like I do today. He said, I know Drew. We were buddies growing up. He was a childhood friend with Drew, and they had reconnected when Drew got to UGA. He said, Drew wants me and you and everybody else to share his story as much as possible so they can see the importance of eternal matters. Drew is the miraculous. He's the miraculous. The 3,000 that were saved are the miraculous. You want to see the miraculous at Fort Heights Baptist Church and in your own life? Have the right preparation. Make sure the right people are present. That being lost people in the Holy Spirit and those to share. And have the right practice. Share the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that Drew Sterling made a difference in my life. But I thank you, Lord, that he's not the only one that you've blessed me with the opportunity to see go from death to life. Lord, I pray right now that each and every person in this room would have an opportunity to see somebody go from death to life. To see the miraculous happen. I pray this church, while they're in sort of a waiting time right now, that they would prepare through prayer and through doing things practically so that they may see the miraculous happen. And I pray that each and every individual in this place would live a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit, that is obedient to your word, so that they may see the miraculous happen. And I pray, Lord, that for every person in this room that knows you, that you would give them a burden and a sense of urgency to share the gospel with the lost world around them, so that they would see the miraculous happen. And finally, Lord, 
I pray today that if there is one person in this place that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that, Lord, in these next moments, Lord, that they would lay their sin at the cross, saying, Lord, I am sorry for the things that I have done, that they would let you know that they believe in you and trust you, and that they would ask you to forgive them of their sins and to save them, so that they may see in their own life the miraculous happening. Lord, bless this time as we sing. In your name we pray.